And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. One of the very best questions I've gotten this year is, I am convinced your four-fund combo is a portfolio I want to add to my portfolio. My question is, how confident are you in the past performance of these four asset classes from 1970 through 2019? Well, you can't believe how juicy a question that is because it opens up the door here to a discussion about past performance that I hope will give you a whole new thought process about looking backward. Now, let me just give you the the briefest of information about this period, 1970 through 2019, and maybe you could see why uh, this uh, person is thinking about using this four-fund strategy. Now, keep in mind what the four-fund strategy is, is simply 25% in the S&P 500, 25% in U.S. large-cap value, 25% in U.S. small-cap blend, and 25% in U.S. small-cap value. And here's the bottom line. When you look at the fine-tuning table for the four-fund combo, now remember, all U.S., and we compare it to the S&P 500, we see that for the period 1970 through 2019, the S&P 500 compounded at uh, 10.6%, and the the four-fund combo at 12.3. So I can see why somebody would be interested in using the four-fund combo rather than the S&P 500. And when we look at the exposure to losses, very, very similar, the worst drawdown from peak to valley before it turned around on the S&P 500. By the way, this is on a monthly basis. If you looked at a daily basis, it would be different, but on a monthly basis was a loss of 50.9 for the S&P 500 and a loss of 56.8 for the four-fund combo. And believe me, when you compound money at uh, over a percent and a half higher rate of return, it adds a lot uh, over uh, somebody building towards retirement. It means maybe you retire earlier. Maybe it, maybe it means you live on more when you retire, or maybe it means you leave more to others. All legitimate possibilities. But it still begs the question, is 50 years of performance meaningful? Well, let's dig into this in a couple of ways. I want to start by picking some information out of an article that Rich Buck and I wrote many years ago. The title of the article is 10 Things You Should Know About Portfolio Performance. Now, this is important. This isn't about 
the performance of a particular stock. It's not about a particular industry. It's not about a particular uh, asset class. It really is about whatever your whole portfolio might be. In my particular case, my wife and myself, we have a portfolio the buy and hold portion of the portfolio that is U.S. and international and big and small and value and growth and REITs and emerging markets, it's a massive amount of diversification. And what we want to talk about here is the performance of the whole, not the parts. So let me briefly go through this article. I think it's worth repeating the words that uh, my thoughts and Rich Buck's actual writing. Whether you're evaluating your portfolio or contemplating making an investment, what matters most is performance. And by the way, that's one of the reasons I love this question for, uh, for this podcast, because at the end of the day, it is about performance. But performance is a, it's a slippery topic, and we'll, we'll dig into that. I go on in the article, okay, maybe investors should care more about other things, but in the real world, they don't. As an investor, you perform in lots of ways. Are you a good saver? Are you a good spender? Are you good at living within your means? Are you good at choosing smart investments? Are you good at controlling your emotions when the market takes you on a roller coaster ride? It's all about performance. But those things are all about you. If you were like most investors I know, you are much more interested in how your investments are performing for you. Fair enough. Here are 10 things about investment performance you should know and never forget. Number one, total performance. You've got to know how you are doing performance-wise. Otherwise, how will you know if you are in the ballpark of reaching your goals? And how will you brag to your friends? At least once a year, calculate the performance of your whole portfolio and write this down for future reference. Resist any temptation to focus only on a few assets that are doing well. What really matters is the package. Number two, don't extrapolate. Maybe you were up 10% last year. That's fact. The danger is thinking that's what you can expect in the future and running the numbers out 10 or 20 or 30 years to conclude that you'll be on top of the world. Such a fancy might lead you to stop saving money, which would be a big mistake. Number three, time matters. Performance figures based on 50 years of data are much more meaningful than those based on 10 years, 5 years, or 6 months. Not every asset class has a long history, of course, and we have to do the best we can with the data we have. Number 4. Past performance is not an indication of future results. Recent performance is no more valid than performance from farther back in history. 
Millions of investors learned this the hard way in the first decade of this century after the marvelous returns of the Standard & Poor's 500 Index led them to bulk up on that asset class in the belief that 18 to 25% had become the new normal. Two severe bear markets later, the S&P 500's long-term historical performance started looking like the good old days. Number five, losses are normal. Whatever you invest in, be sure you are comfortable with the losses you are likely to experience. As the Dalbar studies have shown for more than three decades, most investors don't even achieve 50% of the returns of the market, must much less beat the market. One main reason is that investors are shocked to discover they have lost money, even if the loss is well within the norm. Instead of thinking things through, they panic and sell, ironically locking in the losses that stunned them in the first place. Number six, average investment returns are meaningless. If you gain 50%, then turn around and lose 50%, on average you have broken even, right? Sorry if you start with $10,000 and gain 50% in a year, you have $15,000. If the following year brings a 50% loss, you wind up with $7,500. That's not breaking even. It's losing 25%. In the real world, you will achieve compound returns, in this case, an annualized loss of 13.4%, not average ones. That's where your focus should be. Number seven, above average is a poor benchmark. Tons of data exist showing that in any equity asset class, the majority of mutual funds fail to match the performance of the low-cost index fund in that asset class. In 2014, the average U.S. large-cap blend fund gained 11%, according to Morningstar, while the Vanguard 500 index fund was up 13.5. Number eight, many forces determine portfolio returns. If you're regularly adding money to an account, as most people do in 401k plans and IRAs, you will have a series of many small investments, each with a different starting date and a different duration. No matter how much you try to control everything, your long-term returns will be affected by random events that nobody can predict. Number nine. Don't listen to braggers. Friends, neighbors, and relatives may tell you what returns they are getting. Don't believe them. When they have lost money or made dumb mistakes, they're highly unlikely to come bragging to you. And do you even imagine that they will show you their actual statements to prove their case? Most people, in fact, don't even know their performance returns. 
Uh, I know mine only because of an expensive piece of software used by my advisor. Two separate studies found a difference of more than two percentage points between investors' actual returns and what they thought they had been getting. Number 10, don't be overly impressed by fund company performance. Survivorship bias means returns are often overstated, sometimes by as much as five percentage points a year. Here's a hypothetical example of how that can happen. Imagine a fund company started out with five relatively similar funds, two of which turned out to be dogs. If the company closed the poor funds and kept the good ones, suddenly its average would look much better. The funds that survive, by definition, are the ones that perform well enough not to be an embarrassment. Among hedge funds that have been started in the past 15 years, only about 5% have survived. And by the way, this was written in 2015. That means that the performance of the average hedge fund looks much better than most hedge fund investors experienced. Performance is more than just numbers. If you keep these points in mind, I'm pretty sure your investment performance will improve. In the end, that's what it's all about. I want to use this question and this opportunity to explore some numbers that will show you how difficult uh, the future is, not only in terms of, of what you make, but what you really make. And what you really make is going to be something about inflation as well as the return. It's going to have some, some tax implications as well as what it returns. So at the end of the day, uh, my question may be, do you think that the four-fund strategy will continue over the long term to outproduce the S&P 500? After all, whether you have the total market index or the S&P 500 or most any large cap blend fund, which is the largest holding uh, in America, these large cap blend and the index funds, uh, both the S&P 500 and total market. So when I talk about that period from 1970 through 2019, we start with the basic fact that we know how that portfolio did. If it had not had good performance over that 50-year period, and by the way, it wasn't always top of the heap. It spent a, long, a lot of the time underperforming expectations. Let's, let's make that very clear. But if we looked over the whole period and saw that it worked well, and uh, in our industry, if we believe that the investor will believe five or ten years of performance, we'll make a big deal out of it. 
And if it could do well over 20 or 25 years, even a bigger deal. So I can understand the appeal of a strategy that outperforms the S&P 500 significantly enough that at the end of your life, after you have lived off of the money in retirement, what you have to leave could literally be 10 times what you would have left if you had used the S&P 500 for whatever portion of your portfolio you did it with. Okay, so now let's go back. Let's go back to 1970 and let's see what we would have had in terms of information that would appeal to us, make us believe that the four-fund strategy would be better than the S&P 500. Well, the, the problem is, again, to the extent that the academics had done all the work that they have done since, we would have been able to look back and we would have seen, as an example, that from 1928 to 1969, remember, this is what we knew when we were thinking about investing in 1970 and hoping that we would get over a 10% compound rate of return. In fact, the four-fund strategy for the 70 through 2020 period compounded at 12.2. And that included expenses for the index funds you would have held. It would not have included hiring an advisor to do it for you, but you know, the, 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 the idea of our work is we're trying valiantly to teach people how to take care of this themselves. But here's the bottom line, or is it? The compound rate of return from 1928 to 1969 for the S&P 500 was 9.1%. Now, it's also interesting to note that the inflation-adjusted return, or what is called the real return, uh, was 7.1%. Now, that's an important number to keep in mind, because you can you can think in terms of nominal returns, but real returns are the buying power of the money that you had accumulated through its growth from 1928 to 1969. On the other hand, from 1970, and I'm talking here now about the S&P 500 only, the returns were much higher. The compound rate of return instead of 9.1 was 10.5, almost 1.5% better. And I have talked ad nauseum about every half a percent can improve your lot by literally a million dollars, whether you're just getting started or whether you're just coming into retirement. So that 10.5 is a truly historically an amazing return. But what about if you inflation adjust over that 50-year period? Well, here's the problem. The return now instead of 10.5 is 6.4 real. 
Remember, from 1928 to 1969, the real return was 7.1. And here we have what we thought was a better rate of return, a percent and a half better, actually turning out to have less buying power than what we had at the end of 1969. Oh, but there's more. There's more we have to consider. And this gets complex, too. What about taxes? Well, one of the really interesting things uh, to me is how in my lifetime of having started in this industry, well, I, I was 19 when I personally started investing, but, but I was, I think, 22 when I was licensed and it became possible for me to say I'm in the industry. But tax rates... Uh, back in uh, 1969, on the first on, th- on money over 10,000 that you made, it was a 32 percent tax rate. Over a hundred thousand, it was a 70 percent tax rate. And on long-term capital gains, and by the way, there are differences depending on how much or little money you had, but most people on long-term capital gains paid 27.5%. So huge income taxes and really quite high long-term capital gains. It's amazing the the country didn't completely collapse. Well, actually it did for a while, but I don't think it was about the tax system. Then when we look to 2019, And we know how much money we made nominally. We know how much we made really. But what were the tax rates? Well, at $10,000 plus, you were paying uh, uh, 12% on on earned income. And at $100,000, it was 24%. So, I mean, literally one-third approximately of in both cases, of what you paid back in 1969. And when we look at the long-term capital gains of 15 to 20% instead of 27.5, again, advantage today. Uh, we really have it, it, it good. What is fascinating to me, because I was in the industry back in 1969, is that taxes were, were not considered to be outrageous. They were what they were. People paid them. People took steps to try to avoid them, just like they take steps today to try to avoid them. But I don't want to sugarcoat anything. I contend that all the numbers that Daryl and Chris and myself, all those numbers that we go back and look at to try to learn about not only the potential return, but the potential risk, we believe all of those numbers uh, are legitimate, even though the times were different, because we're simply talking about the response, uh, good good times to bad, and uh, and the losses. And you may remember that nine-decade uh, uh, study that we did that showed how the S and P five hundred in large cap large cap value and small cap value and small cap blend and long-term government bonds and government T-bills. We looked at every decade starting with 1930 to 39. 
And during the 30 to 39 period, the losses on the S&P 500 were actually less. And this is before you take inflation into consideration. It was actually deflation back then. So that even made it better for the 30s. But if you just look at the nominal return in the 2000 through 2009 period for the S&P 500, was a negative 0.9 versus a negative 0.1 in the 30s. In other words, uh, for people who said that I was scaring people for with what happened in uh, uh, in 1930s, was actually preparing people for that to happen again, and it did even worse. But the people who knew that might happen again, maybe those people would be more likely to stay the course. That is always my hope. But now, with the four-fund strategy, let's dig a little deeper about what happened in that period, 1929 through 1932. See, I know that over that period, the... uh, negative returns for the S&P 500 over that four years well, is a loss of 22.7% a year. In other words, at the end of the four years, you were down 64.3%. When you look at our, our fine-tuning your asset allocation table, what you're going to see here is the worst drawdown was about 50% for the S&P 500. But there's evidence that said that after a period of four years, you could be down two-thirds what you had invested or what it was worth at the beginning of that period. Now, when I look at the other asset classes, uh, large cap value fell over that four years a total of 76 plus percent. Small cap blend, 80 plus percent. Small cap value, almost 86% total. Those are total losses at the end of, and the average was 76.7%. So when we talk about the performance of the S&P 500 and the performance of the four fund strategy, it is not wrong to conclude that the four fund strategy is more risky. And in in, in the period from 1970 through 2019, based on monthly data, as I mentioned earlier, while the S&P 500 was down 50.9%, the four fund strategy at one point was down 56.8%. Not as radically different different well you know it's i guess when you consider that the S&P was down 64% and that the total average of the four was down 76 77% that's that's not entirely different from what happened uh here in the 1970 through uh 2019 so so you're you're going to have you're going to have a wilder ride more than likely. It does beg the question, and this is not easy, is if somebody, certainly for a first-time investor, I would say, hey, hey, 
if you get a chance to ride a great set of asset classes through a terrible bear market and you keep investing and you keep buying more shares when the market is down and dirty, that is good. The question is, what do you do with somebody who's near retirement or in retirement? Should they even be in the S&P 500? Well, maybe for some people not. But maybe they decide they're going to put 20 or 30 or 40 percent. In the case of Vanguard, in a target date fund for somebody my age, they would have me 30 percent in equity. At BlackRock, it would be 40 percent in equity at my age in their target date funds. So would it be inappropriate for me to have this four-fund strategy? Well, in all all honesty, basically that's what I've got, except it's not four funds, it's 10 funds, and it includes internationals, but basically the same asset classes. So would I be okay recommending to somebody who is 76% and they are 30% in equities, would I say that it is okay to be in the four fund strategy? Well, if I actually had the time to sit down and talk with them and find out why do they have any equities at all? And here's what I hear often. Well, I don't need the money to live on. I, I'm, I'm just trying to invest to have it grow for my children and my grandchildren. Bingo. If they say that, I got them. <laughs> I got them to the extent that if that's what they're really investing in the in the, in the equities for, yes, then I believe that the four fund strategy would be okay. And there's one more reason that I I am comfortable with the idea of the four funds rather than the one in the total market index or the one being the S and P five hundred for whatever part of your equities you're going to own. We do have another piece of history that is worth looking at. And we can go back to the uh, 2000 through 2002 bear market. The S&P 500 is one asset class. That asset class had been a star performer for literally for decades and it got ahead of itself. It got very richly priced, more richly priced than large cap value, more richly priced than small cap blend or small cap value. Those large growth companies, not so dissimilar to today, were selling at very high price earnings ratios. So what happened in the 2000 through 2002 bear market? And keep in mind, there were a lot of people who had the S&P 500 joyfully, I'm sure, in their retirement account, not expecting to face one of the worst bear markets uh, of 100 years. So what do we know? We know and I'm looking at the fine-tuning table for the four-fund combo. I am looking here in that period from 2000 through 2002 
The S&P 500 in 2000 down 9.1. The following year down 11.9. The following year down 22.1. That's a long time to be going down for people, particularly when they are in retirement. On the other hand, the four fund strategy in 2000 up 4.1, 2002 up 6.4, 2002 down 16.3. And beyond that, as the market came back in 2003 and 2004, the S&P was up 28.7 and up 10.9 versus for the four fund strategy up 43.1 and up 18.1. And it it was better in the next year and it was better in the next year. It wasn't until 2007 that there was about an 8% difference in return between the two. And in 2008, had almost exactly the same loss as the S&P 500. And in 2009, outperformed. And in 2010, outperformed the S&P 500. Now, we don't know the sequence of returns. We don't know what the taxes will be. We, We don't know what inflation will be. There are so many things we don't know. We know right now that that Joe Biden is is favored uh, over Trump. Well, so was Hillary at this point. And, And so we always live with the unknown. So my view is, given what I can see from 1928 through 2019, that the four fund strategy will produce a premium. And that's because three of the four asset classes are different from the S&P 500 and each on their own more risky. And the other 25% is the same in the four funds and in holding the S&P 500 because you do have 25% of the portfolio in the S&P 500 and in total, 50% of the portfolio is in large cap. And large cap value, is they aren't a bunch of bad companies. They're a bunch of companies that often pay dividends, which sometimes hold up better than uh, the more growth-oriented companies in a bad bear market. It can be different from bear market to bear market. So whatever somebody's selling, they always have a list of the good stuff. And that's how they make a living selling those things is because of list A, the good news. And list B, of course, is the bad news. And I think the bad news truly is that in a really devastating time, really big time, devastating economic times, that the smaller and the more value-oriented companies are going to do worse than the S&P 500. I'm sure that's one of the reasons that people who want to be in the stock market have rushed to the S&P 500 because because 
they want to do okay. They don't want to take the risk of the small cap and the and the value. They want to go where the odds are the best that the companies will survive. And uh, it's still very confusing to people. How can the market be doing so well when the news is so bad? Welcome to the market. That is the way the market is. It will go down in the face of really great news and it will go up in the face of really bad news because people are often looking ahead and saying, when things get straightened out, where am I likely to make more money? And of course, we're talking about the money invested that you don't need right now and you don't need in the next year. So... I hope this is a, a helpful response to a simple question, and that is, uh, do you think that the four-fund combo uh, is as basically as good as it looks uh, over the last 50 years? Well, I do, uh, but uh, certainly in my lifetime, it may not act the way I think it should because it feels no obligation to do what I think it should. In fact, one of the difficult things about the market that I have found over the last 50 to 60 years is that what, what I think should happen has absolutely zero impact on what will happen. And it turns out that what I should focus on is not the shoulds of the market, but the shoulds of saving, the shoulds of spending, the, the, the shoulds of having equities for the long term, the shoulds of having fixed income for the short term or to stabilize a portfolio. There are some legitimate shoulds, but the ones that we should focus on are the ones that we can control. So this is a podcast that I just have a sense will make be a value, let's say, to some of your friends. And um, our, our job is to not only educate you, but to figure out how to motivate you to share this information with others that are looking to do better. I also hope that when you go to our videos or our articles or our podcasts, uh, that you will be kind enough to leave a like or leave uh, some sort of, an, of a, a testimonial. I'll hope that it's a good testimonial, but by golly, if it isn't, that's, that's okay. That's okay. And I also know that many of you have donated money to this foundation. I think you know that I do not take a penny personally uh, for my time and energy to do what we do. The same is true of Chris. The same is true of Daryl. We are working to show you the best that we know, and we're only expecting either telling others or maybe uh, reaching for the checkbook or the charge card and making a donation uh, even a $10 donation is important to us. We have a lot of work to do. 
Chris and Daryl and I and Asia and 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 Rich and all, all the folks that are working here are very excited about the future of the foundation. And it's not about our job security. It's about the work that we think we can do to make uh, your future financial your financial future rosier. That's what we're all about. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.